Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Just a quick reminder that new episodes come out on the 15th and the 30th of each month with the occasional random bonus episode thrown out there. So please hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. At Close Range is an incredibly good movie. It's from 1986 and I found it on Amazon Prime as well as 2B TV, which is a free streaming service. And it looks like it's available on Showtime as well, although I currently don't have that one. It has a star-studded cast, including Sean Penn, Mary Stuart Masterson, Chris Penn, Christopher Walken, Crispin Glover, and Kiefer Sutherland. It is an excellent movie all on its own. One of the reviews I read said, I recommend this movie to anyone and everyone. This is one of the few old true crime movies that I hadn't seen and hadn't heard about the case before watching. I'm not kidding when I say that there were at least two parts that had me absolutely speechless, like jaw-dropping. I was so blown away by this movie that I decided to move it up on the recording schedule. The movie starts out with the words, based on a true story. And I'm going to tell you this movie follows so close to the real story. It's one of the closest to the real stories I've ever seen. So I'll tell you about the movie, which is just about the whole real story, and at the end I'll tell you about the bits that were included just for the movie, and I'll go over what really happened in those instances. This is a true crime podcast. It contains descriptions of real murders and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. We start out seeing Sean Penn driving. It's night, and although it's not raining now, it's wet outside as if it has just rained. The screen flashes the words, based on a true story, spring 1978. He is now driving up to the center of a rural town where there are a lot of teens and young adults hanging out. Someone is calling him over, and we find out that the name of the person driving was Brad. The two boys that called him over tell Brad that a guy just took their money. He was supposed to go in and buy them a bottle of Jack Daniels, but the guy just took their money and won't give it back. Brad confronts the guy and tells him this is his brother and his friend, but the guy still refuses to give the money back. The guy gets into his car to leave, and Brad gets on the hood and lays down facing the windshield. The guy tells him if he wants to play, he will play. He starts the car and drives so that he can shake Brad off the hood. Brad holds tight and doesn't slide off. The guy drives faster and more erratic, but it still doesn't work. The guy finally stops and says, Come on, kid, get off the car. Brad puts out his hand and the guy asks, What do you want? Brad tells him he wants the $5 back. The guy shakes his head, not believing this kid, but he gives him the money. Brad gives his brother and his friend back the money as well as the gin the guy bought, and then saunters over to where some girls are that he had been eyeing earlier. Brad is introduced to Terry, the one that he is really interested in. Brad has some drugs, but Terry doesn't do drugs. Her friend asks what they are, and Brad says he doesn't know. He just knows it makes it stronger. She says, makes what stronger? He says, whatever you feel, it makes you feel it stronger. Terry takes one, and so does Brad. Brad has to drive his brother someplace, so he makes arrangements with Terry to meet her in the same place in two days. The next day, some guy, we don't know who, comes over to Brad's house and says he wants to give his mom some money. 
He gives Brad $300 and asks him to give it to her. He asks him how old he is now, and Brad says, old enough. The guy chuckles and leaves. The next evening, we see Brad waiting at town center for Terry. He waits for a long time, but she doesn't show. Later that night, Brad and his brother Tommy are watching TV, drinking beer, and smoking pot. Brad and his mom's boyfriend Ernie get in a fight because they are keeping them awake and he has to go to work in the morning. Brad tells him he has only been with his mom for five months, so he doesn't get to tell him what to do. Ernie throws him out the front door and onto the grass. Brad goes to a payphone and asks for information for the number for Bradford Whitewood Sr., Some time passes, and the same guy that came by that one day to give his mom money shows up again, this time to pick him up. Turns out, this was his dad, who he hasn't seen since he was a baby. As they are driving, Brad Sr. says, So I guess you must have heard about me. Brad tells him he heard that he was a thief. Brad Sr. tells him not to believe everything that he hears. Brad Sr. takes Brad home and there are five adults in the living room watching TV, talking, and smoking. Brad Sr. introduces him to all the guys, family and friends of the family, he says, and to the one woman that is there, he says, this is your stepmom, Mary Sue. He tells Mary Sue to give Brad that room that they have, and he and his friends leave. They are going on a job. We see them later breaking into a window of a building and taking a large safe, which they are cracking open in another location. We find out that Brad Sr. was in prison for pretty much all of the boy's childhood. Brad was just a baby when he went in. The next day, Brad Sr. takes Brad for a ride and tells him that they need to do some laundry. They go to a used car lot, and he offers $5,000 cash for a car marked for $5,500. We see them drive off with it. Then they drive into another used car lot, and Brad Sr. tells the salesperson that he just bought this car for $5,500, and it's a cherry. He wants to sell it and asks if he will give him 4600 for it. The guy asks why is he selling it, and he tells him that he doesn't like the radio. The guy buys the car from him. On the ride home, both Brad Sr. and Jr. are laughing. The next day, Brad's brother Tommy tells him that their mom threw Ernie out. She told him, that's my son, nobody touches my son, and then threw his suitcase out the door. Brad is happy about this and tells Tommy that he'll be home sometime soon. Brad tracks down Terry, the girl he met at the town center, and he goes to see her out on the farm she lives on. He finds out that she got grounded trying to sneak out and see him. He also finds out she is only 16. She tells him that she found out his last name, Whitewood, and that his dad has kind of a reputation. Brad tells her not to believe everything she hears. When Terry's mom starts calling her, they have to cut it short, but Brad gets her phone number before leaving. Uncle Patch, one of his dad's crew, stays home instead of going out on a job with Brad Sr. and the rest of them. He starts telling Brad they should work together. They go in the next room to talk and leave Mary Sue in the front room. She looks very uncomfortable. On another day, Brad Sr. gives Brad a car and tells him there are some borrowed parts on it, but the registration is clean. It's an SS Camaro, and Brad is excited. He tells him he doesn't know if he'll ever be able to pay him back. His dad tells him staying away from Uncle Patch is enough payment. He says they would end up in prison if he doesn't. Brad agrees, but asks his dad to consider teaching him how to do his kind of work, the right way. Brad Sr. tells him it doesn't seem right, but he will think about it. 
In the meantime, he tells him he should go back home to his mom's. He gives him some money to take with him. Brad brings Terry over to meet his mom and grandma. Then he drives her home in his new Camaro. The romance is budding. It's sunny outside, and Brad and Tommy are out in the front yard. Brad Sr. drives over, and he calls out to Brad, and then he asks for Tommy to come, too. Brad and Tommy get in his car. He takes them out to lunch and shows them his gun. Tommy likes the gun. Brad Sr. tells them that once he sees what they've got, he'll give them a real present. Tommy tells them they will show him what they got. Later that night, Brad, Tommy, and three friends are driving in Brad's Camaro. They steal some tractors off of a huge farm and then meet up with Brad's dad so he can make use of his connections and sell them. We later see Brad giving his girlfriend Terry a nice gold necklace. Then we see Brad, Tommy, and friends out again on other nights, at other farms, stealing other tractors and farm equipment, meeting up with his dad and friends again to sell it, and then they repeat it all again on yet another night. These are all successful operations. Then one night a farmer comes out and starts firing a shotgun at them. They all run into the fields of corn and keep running as the shotgun blasts behind them. Brad later calls his dad and tells him he got shot, bird shot to the face. His dad tells him he can't come to his house because he's at a warehouse working with a bunch of other people, and they will be working all night. Brad ends up going to Terry's, and he's over there trying to take the buckshot out with a pair of tweezers. The next day, the kids all go away together and spend some time at a lake, and then when Terry has to go home, she and Brad talk about getting their own place. It's because of this that Brad talks to his dad about joining the gang, his dad's gang. So eventually, his dad talks to him about how it all works, the connections they have and how that works, the dangers, everything. Then he tells him he will have to go out with them once or twice, and then he can decide if he really wants to be a part of it. So Brad goes out with them on a job, and he is the lookout, using a walkie-talkie to communicate with the other members. The job is almost done when he sees the caretaker's light go on, and he alerts the guys. And then when the caretaker steps outside, he tells them to stay right there. He points the walkie-talkie like it's a gun. It's dark, so the caretaker can't see it clearly. He tells the caretaker to just stay there, and it will be okay. The caretaker does as he says, and they all leave without a problem. The group goes out to dinner to celebrate a successful job. Brad's dad is very happy with him. At the restaurant, they see a member of law enforcement that they know. While they are eating, they see a former member of their crew, Lester, from years ago, joining the detective at his table. They all look at each other knowingly. Lester looks uncomfortable seeing them and gives a little wave. Later, when they are finished with dinner and are walking out, they see Lester waiting at their car. He tells them he didn't want to give them the wrong idea, him meeting with the cop. They tell him they didn't get the wrong idea. They ask him if he wants to go for a ride. They give him booze while they are driving, and Brad Sr. gives him a pill, asks him if he gets high, and Lester takes the pill. Brad Sr. asks Lester what he's been talking to the cops about. Lester tells him he sold them some information, junk stuff about some other guy. He tells Brad Sr. that he would never sell him out. He says that, in fact, he was pumping them for information that Brad Sr. could use. He says he found out that they brought the FBI here and they got a grand jury convened. Brad Sr. asks if it was about them, and he said yes. Then Lester tells him he doesn't feel so good. Maybe he drank too much. They pull over and see a body of water. 
one of the Whitewood gang walks slowly into the water with Lester and tells him that the water will wake him up. Brad Sr. is on the bank of the river and tells Lester to get his face wet. Water on his face will help. The member of the Whitewood gang walking with Lester pushes him down into the water and holds him there. Brad is watching from up on a hill, watching his dad, who is watching the guy holding down Lester. His dad looks up at Brad, puts a hand to his lips, and mimes, shh. It's another day now, and Brad is fixing the old pickup truck while his brother Tommy looks on. Brad tells Tommy he is thinking of getting himself a job, fixing Chevys or something. Tommy asks him how much he would make. He tells him 10 to $12 an hour, depending. Now remember, this movie was made in 1986. Tommy says that's not much. Brad says, hey, it's a steady job. Nobody gets killed. Tommy asks him if somebody got killed when he went out with his dad the other night. Brad tells him to forget it. Their dad shows up then, in a new red convertible. Before their dad can hear them, Brad tells Tommy they are no good. Tommy says, what are you talking about? Bad people, Brad says. They are bad people. Brad Sr. asks them what they think of the new car. Then he asks the boys if they can help him out with some weed. Tommy says, yeah, and he runs into the house. While he is in there, Brad Sr. tells Brad that there is a job tonight and he'll be by at midnight to pick him up. Tommy comes back out with the weed and Brad Sr. asks him what's the damage, $25? Brad tells him 40 Brad Sr. looks at him and says, you are a born thief. But he says it like he's proud. The boy's mom and grandma are sitting on the porch. Brad Sr. yells over, looking good, Julie Whitewood. Then, under his breath about their grandma, tired old bag shit. He tells Tommy if he likes the car, he can go sit in the car. Tommy says yes, if it's all right. Brad then tells his dad that he is not going out tonight. He's not going out anywhere. Brad Sr. says, what? You want to live in a dump like this? Working in a cannery 10 hours a day? I thought you were like me. I thought you wanted something. A nice car, a nice girl sitting in your lap, money in your pocket. Brad tells him, you said I could go out with you guys and then decide. He's scared, his dad asks. Brad tells him he has something else. He and Terry are leaving this place. His dad asks him where he's going and what he's going to do when he gets there. Brad says he has some ideas. His dad points out how expensive rent, food, clothes, etc. will be. Brad says he will find something. His dad says all you know how to do is steal and you're too dumb to do that by yourself. He tells him he will come back crawling. Daddy, give me something. Brad is with Terry later that night, and they are talking about going to Montana, where Terry has an uncle. There are good jobs there, she tells him. Lots of land. The next day, Brad gets his brother and a group of friends together, and he talks about an idea to score some money. We jump to a scene of the boys stealing tractors from a tractor showroom. They are loading them up into a big rig. The kid on the lookout tells them there is a car coming. They hurry up and shut the back of the truck, start it up, and move out but it's too late. A police car tells them to pull over. They've been caught. They are all sitting in jail. A guard calls out for the ones that have made bail. Everyone except Brad has been bailed out. Brad's bail has been set higher than all the others. The police are trying to get him to talk against his father and his gang. Brad tells them he doesn't speak against family. Now Terry is on the way to see Brad in jail. Brad Sr. is driving, and one of Brad's friends has come along. 
They give Terry some rye to drink while they are on their way. But Terry really gets drunk, and Brad Sr. gives her a pill to take. They stop off at a motel, and just Brad Sr. and Terry go in the room. The friend waits outside. Brad Sr. asks Terry if she is scared yet. He tells her she should be. He tells her the mistake his son made was letting a woman ruin his business. He says to her, You know too much, you think too much, and you talk too much. Then he says, We gotta get something straight. You ain't going to see my son ever again. I need to hear it. I gotta hear it. I gotta believe it. She tells him that she loves Brad. He tells her that it's a mistake and it's over. Terry tries to leave the room, but Brad Sr. pushes her and locks the door. She tells him the answer is no. She will not agree to leave Brad. He tells her he is not asking. She tells him again the answer is no. Brad Sr. throws her on the bed and he rapes her. In the next scene, we see Terry talking to Brad's grandma, and she is crying. Then we see Terry visiting Brad in jail. They are looking at each other through a window and talking using telephones attached. In another scene, a man in a suit comes into prison to talk to Brad. He says, well, Brad tells him to sit down. Then at Brad's house, Tommy is given a subpoena for grand jury. We then see Brad Sr.'s gang of men digging a hole on a remote hill. When it gets dark, we see them escorting Brad's old friend, the one who went on the ride with Brad Sr. and Terry to supposedly go visit Brad in prison, but in which Terry got raped. They have been walking with this friend for a while, and the friend asks why they are going so far out for a tractor. They start telling him some story, which is paused when he sees the large hole they have dug. He freezes. They shoot him and roll him into the grave they have dug for him. Then they get rid of another member of the Kitty Gang, as Brad Sr. calls it, one of the other friends of Brad and Tommy's. Brad is still in prison, so there are only two now left alive on the outside. We then see those two, Tommy and his last friend left at a carnival. We see Tommy's dad, Brad Sr., meeting up with him. Tommy goes off by himself with Brad Sr., and they are in the woods. Brad Sr. asks him what he would say if he went up in front of that grand jury. Tommy tells him he would not say anything. His dad says, liar, and then shoots him. We see Brad meeting up with some guys in suits, and he tells them that they need to let him out now or he's not talking anymore. They tell him his dad is already hiding three kids away, so they can't do it. Plus, they say he needs to tell them more than just about the tractor thefts. He asks them, have you heard of Lester Porowski? We next see Brad and Terry in the back seat. Grandma is driving and Brad's mom is in the passenger seat. Brad tells his mom that he and Terry are leaving. They are getting out of here. They ask him where and Brad just says far away. He asks his mom if she has any money that he can borrow. She tells him not really. Grandma tells him she has a little. Then Brad's mom asks if he has heard from Tommy. He says he hasn't. Brad Sr. and the rest of the Whitewood gang are sitting around talking about how they are going to take care of Brad. They say if Brad has his girlfriend with him, it will just have to be bye-bye little girl as well. Brad is at home packing, and Brad's mom gives them pictures to take with them. Brad's grandma gives him some money, and he thanks her and hugs her. He gives his mom a hug and kiss goodbye, and she tells him to take care of Terry. They drive over to Terry's house so she can get some stuff. She leaves a letter for her mom. 
The movie cuts to Brad Sr. at a strip club drinking. We cut back to Brad and Terry. They are in the car and ready to leave. Terry telling him she forgot to feed the dog, when all of a sudden a bullet comes through the passenger window and hits Terry. Then a bullet goes through the windshield at Brad. Now we flash back to Brad Sr. laughing and having a good time at the strip club. Then it cuts back again to Brad and Terry. The bullets keep coming from both directions, hitting both of them, one after the other. Then it's quiet, and the SS is eerily still. It's riddled with bullets. It's silent for a long time. Then we see the driver door open, and one boot, splattered with blood, comes out. Then another. We see the boots walking slowly, and then Brad is using a hose from the side of the house to rinse off his bloody, bullet-riddled body, and then tying a tourniquet on his arm, and using strips off a t-shirt for a makeshift bandage around his waist. We next see him knocking on his dad's door. Brad Sr. comes to the door. Brad says, Hey, Dad. His dad pretends he is not surprised to see him. He asks, They just let you out? Brad tells him he just told them a pack of lies, and now he is running where they can't find him. That's good, Brad Sr. tells him. Where nobody can find me, Brad says. Good, Brad Sr. says. Brad asks his dad if he has a beer. Yeah, sure. And he opens the door for him to come in. They head towards the kitchen, and Brad tells his dad he needs to use the bathroom. In the bathroom, Brad gets the gun that he knows is hidden up on the top shelf under some washcloths. He goes into the kitchen where his dad is holding a beer. His dad says, it's good to see him. He hands him the beer and tells him he looks pale. Brad says, I am pale, and takes a drink of beer. Brad asks him, where has he been tonight? Brad Sr. says, yeah, he got drunk, had a fight, Mary Sue, you know, kicked her out, went to Andy's. You know where I've been? Brad asks him. And his dad says, no, shakes his head. Out of one of the sleeves of Brad's jacket, blood starts to trickle out. They both look at it now, streaming down his hand. It's nothing, Brad tells him. I, I cut myself on some barbed wire. Brad's dad moves forward, and Brad yells at him not to move. He pulls the gun out then and tells him, don't fucking move. Brad waves the gun and asks his dad if he is holding the gun that he used to kill Tommy. His dad says, don't say Tommy's name. Then he asks if this is the gun that he used to kill Terry. Brad Sr. says he didn't do anything to Terry. Brad shoots at the cabinet right behind Brad Sr. and Brad Sr. jumps and says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Is this the gun you used on everybody, on me? Brad is almost crying now. Brad Sr. tells him to put the gun down. Brad tells Brad Sr. he is going to die. Brad Sr. is saying anything, anything, so that Brad doesn't shoot, even saying that he loves him, but Brad isn't buying it. He shoots just on either side of him and then moves up real close and presses it to his face. He almost pulls the trigger but stops and says, no, says, I'm not you. He tells him, this is too easy. I want you to die slow. I want you to die every day for the rest of your life. Brad moves back away, but he is still holding the gun on his dad. He is ready to pass out from his injuries and from the loss of blood when he hears the sirens. But he keeps the gun trained on Brad Sr. until help arrives.
Some months later, they are in court, and Brad is testifying. This is where the movie ends. Like I said, this movie stuck really close to the real story. So the main thing that happened in the movie that did not happen in real life was the showdown right at the very end, where Brad Jr. goes over to Brad Sr.'s house and first surprises him that he is still alive. Hey, Dad, you asshole. And then confronts him about killing his girlfriend and trying to kill him. The dad did, in real life, try to murder his own son. But the showdown didn't happen because the son very nearly died at his girlfriend's house but instead made it to the phone to call for help and then collapsed and cradled his dying girlfriend in his arms while waiting for help to arrive. The real dad was Bruce Alfred Johnston Sr. So there was a Bruce Sr. and a Bruce Jr. instead of Brad Sr. and Brad Jr. Bruce Sr. really did have a gang that started in the 1960s and went on until 1978. In 1978, the police were watching the Johnston gang a lot closer, and there was an increased effort to bring them to justice. When it started to get really hot, they started eliminating potential witnesses. Among those killed were James Johnston, known as Jimmy, who was only 18 years old. He was Bruce Jr.'s brother. He was killed on August 16, 1978, as well as two others, Dwayne Lincoln, just 17, and Wayne Sampson, 20. On August 21st, James Sampson, 24, was murdered. Then on August 30th, Bruce Johnston Jr. and Robin Miller, Bruce's girlfriend, were ambushed and shot. Robin Miller, only 15, was killed. Bruce, 19, was critically injured but survived. Dad, Bruce Johnston Sr., was born in 1939. He grew up in rural eastern Pennsylvania with nine brothers and half-brothers. He was expelled from school at age 15 and continued on to an early life of petty crime with some of his siblings. They started out siphoning gas from tractors and then moved on to breaking into stores. Bruce Sr. did time in juvie and went on to do two stints in prison for larceny between 1960 and 1966. He got out of prison and together with two brothers, Norman and David, set up a criminal network. At first it was a car theft ring, but then they moved on to tractors and other farm machinery. They also stole guns, cigarettes, and antiques. They had developed a network of fences that allowed them to move the stolen goods in a timely manner. A retired police officer was quoted as saying, they were damn good at what they did. They had guys that knew how to pick locks and crack safes. They also had a plan where they would have one of the guys phone in a false crime report to throw police off their trail while they were committing crimes in another area. Bruce Sr. showed Bruce, who was called Little Bruce, how to run his own gang with his friends and his half-brother James. It was commonly referred to as the Kitty Gang. Little Bruce met Robin Miller, fell in love, and things were going well for a while as the burglary gang was a success. Then in the summer of 1978, things changed. Little Bruce was arrested in Oxford, Pennsylvania and sent to prison. The authorities had been trying to get Bruce to talk about his father and his criminal enterprise, but Bruce refused. He wasn't talking. He had been in prison for about a month when he got a letter from Robin claiming that his father had raped her. 
According to Robin, Bruce Sr. and another man went on a trip with her to visit Bruce Jr. in prison and on the way took her to a motel. She said Bruce Sr. persuaded her to drink nearly a quart of whiskey. She said she believed that she had been raped while unconscious. Infuriated, Bruce Jr. decided to turn state's evidence. This changed everything for him, and he told them he would talk. Bruce Johnston Sr. and his brothers decided they needed to silence all potential informants. Four members of the Kitty Gang, including little Bruce's 18-year-old half-brother James, were killed in August of 1978 in an isolated field by Bruce Sr. and his brothers David and Norman. Despite the danger to himself, little Bruce signed himself out of protective custody shortly after the murders. On August 30, 1978, he and Robin Miller were ambushed by his uncles David and Norman while arriving at Miller's home. Robin Miller was shot in the face and killed. Little Bruce was shot nine times, including three times in the head, but he still somehow managed to get into the house and call the police. Here is a description of how it happened. Bruce and his girlfriend drove up to her empty home. I've got to feed the cats, she said. Then suddenly two figures emerged from the darkness, shoved pistols at the couple, and began firing at point-blank range. Shot in the face, Robin ran into the house and died. Bruce Jr. hit three times in the head and six times in the back, staggered into the house, and managed to reach a phone. The police found him a half hour later, weeping by Robin's body. Miraculously, little Bruce survived and testified against his father and his uncles. In 1980, Bruce Sr., Norman, and David Johnston were convicted of killing three young members of their crime ring, as well as Bruce Jr.'s girlfriend, and were sentenced to life in prison. Bruce Sr. died in a Pennsylvania prison in 2002 at the age of 63, and his two brothers are still serving time, each in separate prisons. Chester County District Attorney Joseph W. Carroll, who called Bruce Johnston Sr. one of the county's most notorious criminals, said that Johnston deserved the death penalty but that it was not available at that time. It's entirely appropriate that he died in prison, Carroll said. In a February 1980 issue of People magazine, an article said that Bruce Sr. and his brothers looked more like hillbilly hellraisers than they did methodical criminals. But police said that was misleading. He comes on like a country bumpkin, observed one detective about Bruce Sr., but behind that face is a mind that's always going. Reporter Nancy March of the Mercury newspaper in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, said, In one of the first hearings I attended on the case in 1978, I witnessed a helicopter landing in the parking lot of a courtroom delivering the witness, Bruce Johnston Jr., from the Federal Witness Protection Program. Johnston was brought to court with a coat over his head, flanked by armed federal marshals to protect him against a hit. In 1999, Norman Johnston somehow managed to escape from prison. He was on the lam for nearly 20 days. Johnston was 49 at the time. Residents nearby locked their doors, kept children inside, and had guns at the ready. The fear was so much that promoters canceled an outdoor concert featuring fiddler Charlie Daniels, who had been scheduled to perform Saturday night for 5,000 people on a farm near Fair Hill, Maryland. After 19 days on the lam when police finally cornered him, 
he threw up his hands and said, I'm tired. Stay tuned after the music for the bonus movies and some housekeeping. The bonus movie names for this episode, Fatal Error, also known as Fatal Desire. It's available on 2 under the name Fatal Error. It's about a 40-something ex-policeman named Joe initiates an online relationship with 20-something Tanya Sullivan. Conflicts arise after Tanya flies to Atlantic City to seduce Joe, and she reveals to him that she is married. It stars Eric Roberts and Anne Heche, 2006 movie, and again, I found that on 2BTV.com, which is a free streaming service. And the other one is Honor Thy Mother and Thy Father, True Story of Mendez Brothers. It's currently available on YouTube to stream. It stars Paul, oh, I'm sorry, directed by Paul Schneider. It stars James Farentino, Jill Clayburgh, Billy Warlock, and David Barone. Based on true events, the story of Lyle and Eric Menendez, who murdered their wealthy parents in Beverly Hills in 1989, claiming they were acting self-defense after years of abuse. Again, it's a 1994 movie, and I found it on YouTube. Now on for the housekeeping. So a little update on my listeners and sending out some love to all of you. I wanted to update you on the stats and give a shout out to the states, countries, cities topping my listener list. Texas has moved to the number one spot. Thanks, Texas. California, number two. Florida, number three. Illinois, number four, and Michigan, number five. I love it. So I have lived in, let's see, one, two, three, four of those states. The only one I have not lived in is Texas, but I have visited you, and I love you. Thank you so much for listening. Ohio, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and New York round out the top 10. Thank you, all of you. Keep spreading the word and telling a friend. I appreciate you. Top five countries are U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, and Greece is right behind that. The top metro cities are Los Angeles, Dallas-Fort Worth, Chicago, Boston, and Tyler Longview. New York, Salt Lake City, Seattle, Tacoma, and Detroit. So good to see my hometown of Detroit on the list. Love all of you. Top spots in other countries are Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, British Columbia, Brighton and Hove, Glasgow City, City of Bristol, Sao Paulo, and Hessen. Thank you, all of you. Blows me away to have any listeners in these countries, but to have them in all of them is super cool. Love you. Please come visit me on social media and say hi. Feel free to email with any comments on the cases or any case suggestions. The email and the links to social media are in my show notes. I have a really good suggestion from a friend in Michigan that I will be working on as soon as the Based on a True Crime Story, as soon as the Based on a True Story series is over. Please feel free to suggest another one that I can put on my list to look into. For Twitter, I'm at at Avenue Crime. And for Instagram, I'm at Cherry Avenue. I'm at at Cherry Avenue True Crime. And as always, be safe, stay safe until we meet again. The links for the sources will be listed in my show notes, but I will say them here as well. Wikipedia, Bruce Johnston, criminal. 
The Kitty Gang, the true crime story behind the film at close range. Did you know facts.com? Bruce Johnston Sr., 63, notorious killer, dies in prison. Los Angeles Times, latimes.com. James Foley's At Close Range and the Real Story of the Johnston Gang, treepony.com. There's an excellent review of the movie on this site. Com versus Johnston, 42A, 3D, 1120courtlistener.com. Latest appeal denied for Norman and David Johnston News, delcotimes.com. Tired escapee gives up the fight, the Washington Post. Escape revives a town's bad memories, postgazette.com. The actual truth behind Devil's Road in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, wjbr.com.